one of the biggest lessons that I feel like I've learned that I've, I would impress to other brand marketers, um, brand owners, is to really to treat your product and your marketing as like a truly holistic experience. No one loves your brand story. They love what you can do for their life, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more content you can create to add value to their life, the more they're going to you know, develop that affinity for you and then eventually buy your product. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. Direct-to-consumer brands aren't just a fad. They're here to stay and are taking sleepy industries by storm. But how are marketers and founders balancing this tension between long-term brand building and the need for immediate sales? Today, we're going to learn what it takes to be top of mind as a beverage brand. My guest is the founder of Sanzo, the first Asian-inspired sparkling water that uses real fruit like lychee, mango, and calamansi to bring you authentic flavors. If you're a marketer working with or for a D2C brand, you know that there isn't a playbook that has been written for how to do this the right way. But in this conversation, we're going to uncover just how my guest has built a brand and positioned it in a way that has his audience begging for more. Join me live to share his experience. I've got Sandro Rocco. How's it going today, Sandro? Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I am a fizzy, I, I call them fizzy bubblies because I, <laughs> I have no bet, better word for it. But I just, I, I'm kind of in that category of people that I, I'm sure are taking to your brand because it's just like, you're kind of sitting around working all day and you need something better than pop. So sure. you've got now kind of carbonated drinks all over the place, but yours is super unique because you've kind of taken your your heritage and the recipes that you were familiar with from a, as a kid and inspired that towards the recipes for your beverage, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many ways, a lot of these flavors that we're using, you know, before Sanzo had been used in super high sugary or like high concentrated formats that while we're just growing up are just, you know, beverages that I really don't choose to drink now. And so we're just, we're excited to have this new, I guess, like way or like medium to introduce folks to these flavors. Awesome. I wish I could, I wish podcasting, I was able to kind of describe, <laughs> we could have like a scentomatic or a flavoromatic to give everyone a try, but maybe, maybe in the future. I think that's still the the one innovation that we have yet to build that would be. I mean, talk about an immediate unicorn. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, that would that would be it. That'd be the game changer. <laughs> As a consumer, like it feels to me like there's been a huge amount of disruption in the food and uh, beverage market, both from the amount of options that you have and flavors and and types and all that, but also in the types of business models that companies are are using. Even only a few years ago. Uh, really the only place you could get a can of pop was the corner store or the grocery store or the movie theater, right? But now there's tons of options. Before we get into details about how your brand differentiates itself, I'd love to hear you talk about how you've seen the food and beverage, beverage industry go through this wild shift. 
Sure. I mean, I, I won't try to take uh, too far a step back in history, but you know, I, I really think this has been kind of a culmination of the last, call it basically two decades of of the world we've been living in, which is kind of the Food Network, Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, Chef's Table, or you know, take your pick, Cupcake Wars, you know, that have really permeated, you know, like at least for America and I think across the world, like you know, global consumption behaviors. So I think that I think the very first thing is there that people over the last two decades have just begun to care a bit more um, about what they put in their bodies. Uh, they care about you know maybe eating at, you know, eating a little bit better again, whether at home or out at restaurants or, or, or what have you. Um, they care about where their produce is being sourced from, things like that, that honestly, if you look at the, like the, the, the history of time, these are a very recent occurrence. And at least to me, it's, it's, kind of, it's particularly interesting, this inflection point that we've hit with that pop cultural renaissance and food and beverage, like consumer packaged goods. So, you know, what I mean by consumer packaged goods is, you know, things that you would find in the store that, you know, have like a label on it, you know, that isn't already prepared, you know, item. Like it's something you have to, you know, you pull off the shelf and put in your cart. So, you know, I, I, I and we can, I, I'm sure we'll get into it a, a bit more in depth, but you know, I think that's really been the tip, like the, at least the tip of the spear of why, you know, there's been such a surge of new brands infiltrating the space. And you, know, and you mentioned it again, I'm sure we'll get into it, how much technology um, and social media have played into that, into, into brand discovery as well. So mm. yeah, it's been a very exciting time, I think, to be a brand owner and certainly like a founder of, uh, of an early stage brand. Yeah, I heard a in another episode, someone describing a very similar kind of trend that it used to be that food was kind of like you knew the restaurant. And that was kind of a status symbol to be going to that restaurant and you could report back on it. But now that the chefs themselves have been able to become content creators and are no longer kind of strapped to the restaurant, they're actually now seen as key players in the business. Like, oh, can we get this celebrity chef to come cook for us for six months? That's a huge driver. And so, yeah, you've got kind of that media meets tech going towards uh, an industry that has been pretty pretty untouched because the massive global giants have kind of conglomerated all those consumer packaged goods. And now you've got awesome brands like your own coming in and, and getting shaking it up a little bit. What, what market opportunity did you see early on that gave you the insight to pursue building Sanzo? Hmm, great question. So honestly, yeah. So, and you kind of did in the intro. So Sanzo being, you know, it's the first Asian inspired sparkling water. Um, obviously we have a bit of uh, of an Asian hint and like inspiration to what we're building. I myself am Filipino American. So yeah, just fortunate, had the opportunity to travel to Asia, eat amazing, delicious foods. And especially in New York city, you know, there's a pretty high over the last, especially five, 10 years, influx of Asian inspired restaurants, you know, for folks who are, uh, listening to this, who are into food at all, you know David Chang and what he's created with the Momofuku Empire, both as a food conglomerate, but also you know for Dave himself as a as a media mogul. I mean, he has a Netflix show. You know, he just wrote a memoir at the age of like forty two, and it's just amazing what he's created. But you know, where I go with that is, if you follow specifically the Momofuku restaurants trajectory, you'll know that one. Uh, obviously, they put a lot of a time and a lot of time and attention into their food menu. That's a bit obvious for a celebrity chef, but a lot of but what a lot of folks don't know is that for some of these for some of his restaurants in particular, 
there's a really heavy focus on what's on the like the wine list or the just basically the alcoholic uh, beverages menu. And you, you can imagine if you're going to be paying you know quite a bit of money for a meal, you know there's going to be that kind of time and attention. What I found really interesting, I was at one of his restaurants you know back in 2018, sat down, took a look at the menu, noticed yeah the food looks great. The wine list looks kind of cool, but when you got to the non-alcoholic beverage section, you literally had Coke, Sprite, Dr. Pepper, and San Pellegrino. And you know, there, there's a whole other list of other like, I guess, watershed moments I've, I've had. But that was probably one of the biggest ones. Was wow, this place that cares a lot about you know what they put on their menu didn't really have much to put in the way of non-alcoholic beverages, and you know, that just seemed like if I could sell or if I could create a beverage that fit well onto this menu, you know, I wonder what else it could do in retail or even in other restaurants that are like uh, Momofuku. And that's kind of where, you know, like, like that's, that, that's part of where it started. The other thing that was going on as well was, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was the, like in, in, mid, in, the mid, in the middle of 2018, Crazy Rich Asians was the number one film in, you know, American cinema. You had K-pop hitting a fever pitch and just these confluence of things coming together. I was like, there's got to be an opportunity here for at least like a, a brand. And, you know, particularly I had worked at a technology company where our refrigerators were just stocked with brands of sparkling water. But felt like, hey, there's an opportunity here to introduce some some new flavors to the category. So yeah, that all like all those little different anecdotes kind of serve as the genesis and the inspirational points for for starting the brand. And from what I understand, you've used a lot of that insight in your growth strategy. Like you've gotten into some some restaurants very early on to be able to get that in front of people, right? Yeah, that was very much an intentional part of, of launching the brand, figuring, hey, I'm self-financing this, so I didn't take outside money until we raised, you know, about two months ago. And so the goal was, hey, to exactly the point that you raised, you know, restaurants and especially chefs have a really big following. You know, anytime they post on on, on Instagram, the engagement levels are usually like through the roof and certainly over-index, you know, what a lot of other folks would post. Food photographs like obviously incredibly well. And so my thought was, hey, you know, if you can get some free impressions by being, you know, by doing cross-promotional marketing with these restaurant groups um, or with these chefs, hey, that's an opportunity and also to create a bit of like an aura around the brand. You know, if if a Dave Chang restaurant or, you know, your favorite, you know, vegan salad shop or poke shop, you know, around the corner, you know, put Sanzo on the shelf. You know, I think if you added that up uh, a number of times, it kind of confers a level of quality. And certainly, it was just an easy way to, I think, introduce folks to the brand, right? You're getting a poke bowl or a salad anyway. Why not add a sparkling water? So it was a very big part of our go-to-market to launch in, in kind of trendy, you know, food service locations around, around New York City. Mm. So, so you were very deliberate in your positioning of Sanzo as you kind of start figuring out what the brand's going to look like and the the aura around it and the look of the can and all those things that are, if the product tastes really good, are easy to figure out. But if you're trying sure. to like piece all these things together, it sounds to me like you were able to the the opportunity served as well as the like the positioning of the product from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I have to be like fully transparent. Should probably give the Oatly team their nod. I tried to basically adopt their go-to-market playbook when they launched in the United States. You know, if, if your audience isn't too familiar, essentially, instead of going to mass retail, they went to a bunch of 
like trendy baristas in New York City and tried to and basically introduced you know consumers to oat milk via these baristas. And in a similar way, it was hey we have you know tried to be very humble about it, which is hey we have a sparkling water, but with certain flavors that maybe some folks have never had before. How do we let our retail partners help sell the product for us and, ger- and generate that initial trial? And then how can we take that and kind of fold it into you know, the, the early beginnings of a brand? And that's kind of, yeah, I mean, I kind of have to give the Oatly team their, their props because <laughs> I definitely borrowed that from them. But you know, it, it, it seemed to be successful for them. And at least you know, so far in our earliest days, it seems, to be, it seems to have served as a really, really good launching pad you know, for, for our brand. Yeah. In, in those early days of door knocking and having to convince, just, just out of curiosity, were you going to the manager or the store owner? How, how did you have to pitch it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really whoever is in charge of making the decisions. So in some places, especially restaurant groups, you know, they have a dedicated beverage manager or beverage director who, who makes those decisions at super small locations or typically like independent markets. So think Whole Foods, but, you know, the one location down the street from you, you know, owned by, you know, like very often like a true like mom and pop where that mom or pop is the one making the decision. And so you're pitching them. So, you know, basically, you know, I would go into the store, ask for whoever is in charge of making those kinds of decisions and kind of on the spot, you know, do the pitch. You know, you didn't have much time. Fortunately, you know, pre-COVID, you know, folks are a little more easily receptive to folks just kind of walking in and pitching them. Times have changed a little bit now, unfortunately, but you know, it, it, that's, you know, it, it was the way I got started. It was literally on the streets of New York with uh, with a backpack full of sparkling water and just <laughs> basically trying to sell to whoever would take us. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. We were actually pretty selective. We tried to be pretty selective about our first few partners. But within that set, whoever was willing to take us on, you know, yeah. we were you know full bore. It also helps that you have a product that someone can actually drink right in front of you and say, "I like it" or "I don't," and that's a pretty good indicator. You should continue the pitch or just turn around. Well said. Yeah. And, and it's good. I felt like we would get often very binary reactions. It was either, yes, I want this right now or no. And in which case it actually made it easier, right? Yeah. You could just kind of move on from them and move on to the next one. So yeah, yeah, it was a very, and it still continues to be a pretty, a very interesting process to sit in the beverage sales industry. Yeah. Moving on to talk a little bit more about the marketing now. The model right now for that a lot of D2C brands are using, I'm noticing, is they they grow an audience and then they try and sell them something instead of kind of the traditional model of like you launch a product and then you grow an audience to sell more of it. How sure. did you think about that in the early days or are you thinking about it right now? Sure. It was for us a little less sequential. It was a bit more, hey, let's do both. So, you know, again, having really just kind of self-financed this whole business, you know, the, the goal was I kind of just actually wanted to get the product out there, do as many, you know, do the right iterations, do what we needed to do, you know, to, to create the right formulation, get the packaging right. And at the same time, you know, as we, you know, gathered a few, you know, retail distribution wins or got some PR that we could kind of use to, you know, sell on the direct consumer business, you know, we then started really like crafting the brand story or really like building the brand story. So, you know, when we would sign, you know, let's say like a, a buzzy food service partner, like, like a, like a Momofuku, we would really lean into it on our, on our soul and pretty much just like, you know, try to like, you know, beat our chest on, Hey, you know, Momofuku is a 
a pretty big you know, partner to potentially have. They are very discerning. They picked us, which means, hey, we're not so bad. So right. give us a shot. And so, and it just kind of like ping ponged, you know, you get you know, you know, that, that would in turn create our audience, which we would then try to sell them the product. So I feel mm-hmm. like we, you know, I'm not sure the best analogy, but we try to do kind of both at the same time, kind of ping pong from one to the other, you know, depend, uh, like, uh, depending on the day. And so it's kind of gotten us to where we are now, which is kind of the same thing, which is, you know, just like just yesterday, for example, we launched in one of the more trendy natural foods markets in uh, Los Angeles called Erewhon. And, you know, like it's a great one. It's a great way to, to build the brand. I mean, being a brand that's in Erewhon does confer a level of you know, quality and, and taste upon, you know, upon the brand. You also then, you know, get access to that community. And so I think it's up to you as the brand owner to, to lean into that, you know, a marquee partner like that. You don't just, you know, like dismiss it and call it a day. If you're doing it right, I think you invest into that retail relationship and it does from what we've seen, pay dividends on both the e-commerce side, on both the retail side and the direct consumer side. Folks will try you out in a store and then buy your product or buy our product uh, online. And so I think they can both be really accretive channels to each other, as long as I and I, I want to be clear about this: as long as you're intentional about like putting the megaphone out there to the brand. And I think especially now during COVID where it's so much harder to, for, for new brands to generate trial, you know, you really do need to like create that community and kind of constantly be a presence in front of them because folks will forget you, right? I mean, like, folks' attention spans are not very long. No one loves your brand story. They love what you can do for their life, right? Mm-hmm. And so the more content you can create to add value to their life, the more they're going to you know, develop that affinity for you, but, and then eventually buy your product. So I, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but basically I think the bigger point here is I do think you need both in pretty equal parts. You need to have a product that has, you know, distribution and hopefully part of that's also online, but then you also I think need to be cra- continuously crafting and telling your story to that community that you uh, foster. Yeah. Especially your point to when those partnerships happen or anything kind of cool within the business there's no sense in being humble about it. You may as well turn that into a news story in itself and and share it with your audience because those who have been following you for a long time and are would consider your true fans, they're pumped because now they get to, they've seen you grow up another stage and so they're going to support that. You also get to use that brand equity that you're uh, sort of absorbing from that bigger brand and that's adding to your to your momentum and your gravity. And you're just kind of positioning yourself as, oh, this, like we're in the f- best restaurants and the best convenience stores in the country. Uh, and you can also buy us online, which kind of is a nice transition to what I'd like <laughs> to chat about next, which sure. is, uh, of course, you you were kind of gaining a lot of momentum right before COVID, but you were set up in a way that allowed you to flick the switch, as you said, to to then offer that direct to consumer product. Was that was that by design? How did you have that infrastructure in place so that you were able to, once everyone had to quarantine, to be able to still continue shipping your product, but right to people's doors? Sure. So, boy, a lot there. <laughs> we were so I'll say this: we were already in general building that infrastructure. I had before this role been head of marketing and then chief of staff at an apparel company that 
it was a hundred percent direct to consumer. And so, you know, for five years, I kind of had that ingrained in me to, to see the value of, Oh, going direct to consumer can be pretty, um, can be pretty awesome. I will say specifically for our timing, you know, I have a lot of relatives and friends in Asia and, you know, who were kind of seeing what was going on as early as like, I want to say late December, if not early January. And then, you know, particularly in New York City and in San Francisco, my friends who are in the restaurant scene, you know, specifically in Chinatowns were, you know, seeing pretty bad, you know, foot traffic and in, in, into their restaurants, you know, way earlier than any shelter in place. You know, there's a lot of, you know, anti-Asian and anti-Asian American sentiment going around. And so, you know, you saw that translated into sales there. So, you know, around like January, February, we were pretty intentional or, or, or pretty like, I uh, hadn't had enough, I think, foresight to see, hey, this could get really bad pretty quickly. Certainly, I don't think anyone really knew that it could, you know, that, you know, what, what are we now, seven, eight months um, in and it would, it would remain. But, you know, we definitely knew by around March, but before March, that things could really turn uh, a turn for the worst. And so, you know, having that e-commerce infrastructure just kind of sitting there ready to go when we needed it. And, you know, we were already selling orders direct to consumer, you know, mostly, but we weren't putting any paid ad spend behind it, certainly weren't, you know, shooting much traffic to our website. It was just more of a, hey, if you like us, go and purchase us here. But once shelter in place hit, we were pretty, I think, pretty prepared organizationally to take that on. So, you know, our our warehouse was ready to ship out product. And one of the things I'm really proud of is we never we never had service interrupted the entire time. Even like I had friends who literally texted me in the middle of April saying, Hey, I have an Amazon shipment that is projected to take three weeks to get to me. My order from Sanzo came overnight. And so, and we were really proud about that. And then, you know, when you, when we saw not to get out to nerd out too much, but you know, we saw pretty instantaneously, you know, gigantic consumer industries pull their ad spend from the big ad networks in a pretty marked way, you know, airlines, hotels, you know, D to C brands who sold, you know, travel and luxury goods. And so it literally created an art, like I true, I call it a true like arbitrage opportunity, you know, to acquire new customers, valuable customers that before may have cost X, you know, two weeks later cost one tenth of X. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a really great way for us, you know, to pretty cheaply acquire new customers and kind of and, and, you know, generate trial and get, get ourselves in front of them. So, you know, never like to be insensitive to what's been, you know, a really bad uh, situation for the world. But, you know, as a as, as business owner, business operator, you know, we had to try to find ways that we could take advantage of the opportunity and still serve customers. So, you know, that's what we did. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a lot of nuance to the uh, subscription model, but yeah. If there are any learnings that you you had to overcome really quickly, kind of moving your focus away from retail and straight to, to online sales, retention is the biggest thing because the cost of acquisition can kill you if you if the person just buys once and then never comes back again. If you spent more than the cost of or the profit you sure. made from that product, that's a failing business model. So you have to be able to make the lifetime value higher than the cost of acquisition. What what have you learned about retention over these last six to eight months in in your brand? Sure, I mean, what we're super proud of right now is that we actually boast 
and I, I fortunately can't go into the exact numbers, but when you look at our repeat purchase rates inside of the first 45 days of initial purchase, they are significantly higher than benchmark for you know other similar types of brands, and even just in general within the in in, in the direct consumer space. Look, I think the first thing you know, I, I, and we can certainly get into certain strategies and tactics, but I do think the very first thing is having a pretty solid product, right? <laughs> I, it, it sometimes goes without saying, but you know, one of the things that I've, I think, learned over my last you know, six, seven years, actually a bit longer now in startups, is the quality of the product really matters. I mean, you can have the best you know, life cycle marketing, right? Like hitting the right person at the right time with the right message through email or SMS or whatnot. But you know, if your initial product experience is not good, no amount of marketing is ever going to save you. So I think the very first thing that I've learned in this industry is like your product is your marketing. It has to be differentiated. It has to be good. And I think you have to start there. You know, number two is, you know, our unboxing experience is pretty cool. You know, you get ours, like the actual box it comes in. We put, we take, we took a lot of time and care to make sure that that looks like a kind of like a wow experience when you, when you opened it up and we see it now on our, on our Instagram, we have a lot of folks who will like Instagram story, you know, they're, they're unboxings with us. And that's like, you know, it's super awesome. And the third part too, it is like, I think kind of just meeting customers where they are. So, you know, what we saw was, this was before we launched the subscription model. You know, we did see a pretty high occurrence of, of, of of like second, third, fourth orders. And so I was like, okay, well, can you just build in, build in this behavior to let customers do it if they want to. And it turned out, you know, like I said, like a lot of, a lot of folks wanted to. And so outside of that, you know, what I would say is like, yes, you do need to be communicating with your customers. You know, email is a, is, is a, is a, is a big channel for us. But I, I kind of still go back to, you know, what you're doing to develop the brand, whether it's through social media, your PR and brand strategy. Because look, at the end of the day, you know, you're like, no matter how big your email list is, you know, there's still, you know, I, I would say if you're if you're doing it right at least 50% of your audience is still not going to see a particular email that you send out, right? And so, you know, there's a lot of churn in the funnel. And so I, I do think, I, again, like one of the biggest lessons that I feel like I've learned that I've, I would impress to other brand marketers, uh, brand owners, is to really to treat your product and your marketing as like a truly holistic experience. It's not just one channel. It's not just one tactic. It's not like just one Facebook ad is all of a sudden going to create a massive amount of brand affinity. It might attract some purchases, but your brand affinity, why people come back is to me, it, it, it's, it's way more than just that. And so, you know, we can certainly get into those tactics if you want to, but I do think like the most important thing that I would say, it's like, it, it's what your brand is and lives and breathes mm-hmm. every day that I think ultimately attracts those higher repeat purchase rates. There's one one that I don't hear very often, and it's always been interesting to me, which is around that unboxing experience, because you have such a unique opportunity with physical products that that is part of um, the experience. Like from the, the second the door rings and the delivery person drops off that box, you're now in complete control of the per, of the experience from the time that they open the door and pick it up to the time that they dispose of it. Like that is all within your control. If you could chat me through like how you designed or what 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 you thought about when you were designing the packaging and the unboxing experience, and if there are any hooks in there that marketers could kind of learn from in their in their world. 
Yeah, and I think look, it goes. There's a couple. There's a number of different things you could you could do here. I mean, I think the first thing that I would say is having a cognizance of you know where your shipment, where where, where your product lies there. So in, in the example that you drew up, you know, the person rings the doorbell and you know there's your product. But I would also add that very likely there's also a couple boxes from Amazon and maybe other folks as well. But let's use Amazon as probably the most like as the example because frankly they dominate e-commerce, right? You're right. So, you know, just like the outer box is something that's just like, just starting out with that, you know, ours is in a more of like a, like a black, like premium box that our distribution partner and like third party logistics provider, you know, that we co-designed with them. And then the actual, like literally like the 12, like we, like we ship them out in 12 packs and just like the attention to the print quality of the box itself, having the information that that customer needs, like right then and there other i think other folks who may have more like complex products like you know, one of my friends is helena price hambrecht who is the founder of house who sells like a like a low uh, abv like the, the aperitif and you know they have you know a bit of like like a, like a hand like a like a cliff's notes on you know how to consume our product you know the story behind their brand and whatnot and that may be a little bit more necessary for a product as complex as as that you know for us it's a bit simpler it's sparkling i'm pretty like sensitive to that it's, it's sparkling water right so you take it you take it out throw it in your fridge and and drink it but i do think it's a really uh valuable part of and, and often one that i see like missed out on especially by beverage companies it'll literally just ship out in like you know like a little like unmarked tray that has like a plastic overwrap on it and that's fine i mean obviously if your can is, is nice and well designed like that's fine but you know we we have seen on our end, quite a bit of, I think, uh, I, I think benefit from having invested into the actual box itself that the cans come into. Mm, cool. And then do you do any type of incentivizing that user-generated content you talked about of having people organically take pictures of them unwrapping that box and, and then you being able to use that? Yeah, I, I will be completely honest. Candidly, other than what I think is general, like D to C one hundred and one, you know, we do not. I mean, we have you know certain hashtags that we encourage folks to use, but I would argue it's actually a testament to the quality of the packaging itself that people have just gone crazy on their own doing it. We're still looking. You know, frankly, we're looking at ways to better frankly, like programmatize, like, you know, how, how to take advantage of this. But in, in at least in the interim, in, in, in the earliest days, you know, I think our product packaging has just been able to, 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 to drive that UGC by itself. Mm, very interesting. I'm curious about now you as an operator of this business with a marketing background and who obviously understands marketing through and through and has a deep understanding of why it matters, but also what you'd like to see done. I'd love to hear you talk about what you what you look for when you're now having to go out and hire someone to either work for you or with you in in that marketing role specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just kind of a both like a hunger and a humility. You know, the hunger part is you know, and I think it's the nature of being an early stage brand. Someone who is eager and willing to get. It's basically muck it up, you know, get their hands dirty. And for us, marketing is, it, it, it has a bit of a wider scope than I think you might see in other, in, in other places, because it could mean on Sundays, you know, social media, you know, putting together, like, like putting together posts for us, you know, moderating things in, in that realm. It could be also putting together field marketing collateral, you know, things for us in, inside of 
places like Whole Foods or Erewhon. I would say very tactically on the marketing side, we have an intern now who is both very social media like proficient. So like she understands platforms. So she understands Instagram. She understands Twitter. She's also just about to graduate college. So she's also a very heavy TikTok user and just knows like what consumers want in that space. And then also has frankly the chops to create the content her own. So she's kind of like a self-taught like kind of savant in Adobe Creative Suite can create her own stop motion graphics. You know, we're, you know, when you look at our Instagram right now, like you know, the little things that are put together like graphically are just things that she can do. And so it is, I don't want to say more difficult, but definitely, you know, the ask I think is higher for top level executional marketers to be able to, you know, do some stuff on their own, especially for early stage brands. So that's what I'll say there. And then the humility aspect to it, you know, uh, and it's something that I feel like I learn every day is that whatever you knew yesterday, like there's a good chance it's not true today or may not be true tomorrow. And I think having the humility to constantly uh, be questioning, you know, what you're doing or challenging, you know, like held assumptions or beliefs that you had is just so important to this, to, to specifically this role because things do change can change on a dime. And so those are like from both qualitative and I guess like uh, a tactical nature, like those are definitely the things that I look for in, in, in marketers. Awesome. I think that that ability to actually execute and, and have experience in doing the execution, maybe with your own brand or with kind of mock brands or whatever it is, plays yeah. a huge role because every... It, Social media is no longer uh, nice to have. It's very much a table stakes thing, and it's not like you can fake it. Like you can kind of you can be a consumer of social media, but being a producer is a, such a different yeah. experience, and you learn so much, a lot, lot more to it. Awesome, Sandro. I'm going to let you go, but I got one more question for you. What What is something exciting that Sanzo's got lined up in the next, honestly, I'm going to say six months because at this stage, you're moving so quick and doing all these cool things that I don't, I wouldn't even project it any further. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You say six months is like a short period of time. I'd be like, hey, let's talk about the next like month. Um, <laughs> even better. Right. So, you know, I'd say the biggest, the most, the most exciting thing we have going on right now is we did just launch about two months ago into Whole Foods across the New York, uh, like New York tri-state area. So, you know, 50 stores between Western Connecticut and central New Jersey. We also did launch just yesterday into, I mentioned Erewhon in Los Angeles. And, you know, I think supporting those partners and just frankly seeing us on the same shelves with some of the most iconic, you know, food and beverage CPG names out there is just like really exciting and kind of validating, I think, for what we're building. And we're also getting like really good shelf placements, which I think show, you know, we're a brand that people want to, you know, pull out from the shelf, right? So I think supporting that is what I, is something that is super exciting to me. Also, just how we're developing the brand and the team. So, you know, we did just bring on, you know, so up until literally two and a half weeks ago, I was the only full-time member of our team. And we've had two new team members start up. And so just developing the earliest, you know, the foundation for what I think this company, this brand can become is just like, it's just very humbling, very, uh, very grateful to have this opportunity to build the brand, you know, to build a brand up, you know, from the ground up. So yeah, I don't know if that, I don't know if there's any, I don't know if that answers your question or <laughs> anything like that, but it's just, I, I'm, I'm just excited to every day have the opportunity 
to be, you know, building this, this brand and this company. And uh, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, you, you've shared a lot of awesome insights there, Sandro, and I really appreciate it. And I look forward to eventually tasting it. Is it available anywhere other than the States yet? We unfortunately do not yet ship to Canada. Um, <laughs> well, we, need to figure, we need to figure out the tariffs, but uh, yes, we will get you some as soon as we, <laughs> as soon as we can. Wicked. But if you're in New York or in LA, go check it out at Whole Foods or Air One um, or get it direct to consumer. Drinksanzo.com. That's S-A-N-Z-O.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sandra. That's been great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.